Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Support for this podcast comes from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, understanding and preventing suicide through research, education, and advocacy. Information about resources at afsp.org. Chicago area residents can join the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention for the Out of the Darkness Chicagoland Community Walk. Registration and information at chicagowalk.org. Wonder Woman is an archetype, what she represents. It is a woman who is not a victim and will not be a victim. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. This week on the show, author Lev Grossman. I wonder if I succeeded too well. <laughs> She's like a nine-year-old nerd slash goth. It's kind of amazing. And we get to know Wonder Woman with a comic historian. There's a lot of bondage, a lot of sexual stuff between the lines that critics of the book noticed and brought to DC's attention. And Myerson said, well, I'm not going to change it. And... They decided to let him do it because it was selling like crazy, and that gave him a certain amount of power over the book. All that plus your nerd confessions on this week's Nerdette. Lev Grossman's new book, The Magician's Land, is the third book in his The Magician's series. The books are sort of like Harry Potter for grown-ups, even though Harry Potter is also for grown-ups. <laughs> Lev also writes about books and tech for time. This pretty much means that Lev is a nerd's nerd. <laughs> It's weird being a critic and and writing novels. And really, I started reviewing novels because I really like reading them. And if you review them, publishers sometimes send you free ones. Mm -hmm. And also, I was ill-suited for any other form of employment other than writing novels. And my writing novels took a while to take off, so I had to do something to survive in the meantime. And it is weird. The worst part of it probably is when you're writing, you write something, and you think, wow, the critics are going to hammer me for that. And you change it and you take it out. And then suddenly you're co-writing your novel with a whole bunch of imaginary critics. I try to make that happen as as rarely as possible. But every once in a while, you you try to sort of defend yourself, like, preemptively against somebody saying you're an idiot. (laughs) That's sort of, I guess, the downside of it. But the good part is that I get to read a lot of what's going on in contemporary fiction. Not just fantasy and science fiction, but just regular old literary fiction. I have a good vantage point to see kind of what's going on, and to steal all the best things that other people are doing and put them in my work without attribution. Are you a book juggler at all? Does your bedside table have a half dozen of these different books that you're reading for work? And do you ever get to read anything not for work? Or I guess maybe if you liked it enough, you would find a way to write about it. My bedside table is you can't even see the table part. (laughs) Just towering stacks of books, which sometimes fall over on me in my sleep. I used to read only for work and never read anything just because I felt like it. But lately I've been more kind of just reading whatever I want. And if it happens to be something that's coming out, I review it. And if not, then not. It's sort of a mix of stuff for work and stuff not for work. And I sometimes feel guilty reading 
things that are not potential review candidates but then I just do it anyway. I recently come into a position at work where I'm able to read books and interview visiting authors. I always thought it would be my dream job to be able to read these books and interview authors, but sometimes it's super stressful. It definitely has changed the pleasurable nature of reading. Definitely, definitely. And you kind of have to fan that flame of spontaneous pleasure sometimes. And sometimes the deadlines start coming out all wrong and you just, you're just like, wow, I would really enjoy reading this book at a leisurely pace. I'm going to have to grind through it because I need to have read it by tomorrow. And that's sort of bad. Yeah, it's funny. I never thought getting to read books would really stress me out, but sometimes it does. I mean, it's still the greatest job that you could ever possibly have. Absolutely. But sometimes it is a little bit weird doing stuff that you would ordinarily do for pleasure on a strict timetable for money. You also write about tech. It seems like now more than ever, there are just so many different directions that tech could take you. And I was wondering what you think the most fascinating thing about recent technology is. We live in an age where the really radical hacks are design hacks and they're social hacks rather than making processors smaller and faster. The most interesting stuff that I look at these days, I feel like, is the intersection of technology and the way we interact with each other and how our relationship with ourselves and other people is distorted when it is channeled through these tiny little tubes we call the Internet, which was not invented for that purpose. And as a result, it's, in some ways, it's still less than an ideal way to transact human relationships. And yet we do it anyway, sometimes very weird results. I think when people talk about technology, they forget that it hasn't just changed how we do simple tasks, but it's changing fundamentally the way we communicate. And so, of course, journalism is changing dramatically. Of course, every social institution is changing dramatically because the way we talk to each other is very different. It's doing it at this galloping pace. I mean, we just seem to be unable to keep from adopting technologies in this compulsive way with no thought whatsoever to how they're altering us and whether those alterations are good or bad things. It's a cliche to say it. The pace of change is, is rapid and accelerating. And we seem to just sort of be like, yeah, man, let's just set the controls for the heart of the sun and just, you know, <laughs> see what it's like when we get there. I feel as though if only we could just sort of slow down and think, wow, is it a good idea to, like, read books on screens? We're having these conversations with our friends all the time when we're walking around. Maybe there's a better way to live in that. But no, because it's possible, because it is technologically possible, that means automatically that we have to do it. Is there anything that you wish technology would do that you thought maybe we'd have by now? I mean, we joke that there was a flying car at the 1939 World's Fair sometimes. But is there something that you think is near enough to our future that you're kind of saying, all right, give me this thing that I want, a life convenience thing or an app that you can't imagine why it hasn't been built yet? Anything like that? Oh, God, I was talking about something like this just the other day. Medical stuff, like genetically, it's super likely that I'll have Alzheimer's by the time I'm 70. So it would be really good if they could fix that in the next 30 years. That would be great. <laughs> and what else? Oh, I don't know. Audiobooks. I wish that there were a way for um, to somehow mate um, paper books to audiobooks so, such that, you know, I'm reading my book, I put it down, I go for a run, I can, very, I can in some easy, convenient way, pick up uh, the audio version of it where I left off and then go back. I wish there were some way to, to think those up in a nice, coordinated way. So somebody get on that. 
<laughs> Dude, I've been wishing for a similar thing because, yeah, of course, I want to be reading the book even if I can't look at the page. And so often, you know, I have to put the book down to start cooking or whatever. Why not be able to just push a little play button and have it pick up right where I left off? It would be amazing. It would be amazing. You guys, my Kindle books do this already. I know you want your paper book, but my Kindle book is synced to Audible. It's not the same, Trisha. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lev, you're also a father, right? Yeah. Well, we were wondering what you do to encourage knowledge seeking and confidence and overall nerdiness in your children while still helping them with social skills and other important life skills. This is something I think about a lot. I'm very much a Luddite when it comes to children. I don't like them having contact with screens to the point where I send my three-year-old daughter to a Waldorf school, which I don't know if you know what those things are, but they're the ones where like you can't have any plastic toys and there right, are no screens. Right. I feel as though children really have to learn to understand and deal with problems in the physical world and understand how real objects work before they start dealing with virtual objects and before they allow screens to do the work that their imagination ought to be doing. they got to bulk up those muscles and those cognitive skills before they can do the screen stuff. To make my children sort of smart and confident, I keep them away from technology as much as possible. I want them to like the kinds of things that I'm interested in. But as it turns out, you know, the way you do that is by modeling that for them. Just letting them see you being interested in things. And they'll look at that and think, oh, maybe that is interesting to me. And my my nine-year-old, I wonder if if I succeeded too well. (laughs) She's like a nine-year-old nerd slash goth. It's kind of amazing. They look at her and think, (laughs) the seed is strong. (laughs) That is one awesomely nerdy little girl. That father of a nerdette in training is Lev Grossman. He also writes for Time, and his new book, The Magician's Land, is out now. This is the third of the trilogy, much awaited by some of you, I know Greta included. So check out the first two if you haven't, and then wrap up with his new book, The Magician's Land. Coming up, comic historian Tim Hanley on Wonder Woman. You're listening to Nerdette. Support for this podcast comes from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, understanding and preventing suicide through research, education, and advocacy. Information about resources at AFSP.org. Chicago area residents can join the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention for the Out of the Darkness Chicagoland Community Walk. Registration and information at ChicagoWalk.org. I'm Trisha Bobita here with Greta Johnson. You're listening to Nerdette. Comic historian Tim Hanley's new book is called Wonder Woman Unbound, the curious history of the world's most famous heroine. Now that we know we'll see at least a glimpse of Wonder Woman in the Batman vs. Superman movie, and hopefully soon a Wonder Woman movie all about her, we thought we'd get to know the history of this iconic character. When I was in university, my undergraduate thesis I did on comic books in the 1950s, and I kept hearing very small but very weird things about Wonder Woman. Like there'd be a sentence somewhere about bondage or a sentence somewhere about lesbian inclinations in the 1950s or losing her powers in the 1960s. So when I did my master's degree, I thought of this Wonder Woman stuff that kept coming up in my other research. And so I dug into it from there, and every small little weird thing I'd seen in passing was, in fact, crazier and far more interesting the more I dug into it. One thing I love about the idea of studying comics is I think a lot of people at first glance think, oh, it's kids stuff, you know, it's there's nothing necessarily like societally indicative about them. But actually, they're like this great lens to kind of look at American history and sort of the history of feminism in a lot of ways. Yeah, they kind of work as a good mirror for society at the time. Wonder Woman was created to be a very specific counter to 
all of the other superhero comics at the time. Because all of the superheroes were guys, they were violent, they had dark origins, and here's Wonder Woman, and she's happy, and she fights when she has to, but she'd rather talk to you first. It was very intentionally a counter to everything that was happening at the time. Can you remind our listeners what Wonder Woman's origin story is? Wonder Woman is an Amazon, and the way the Amazons are set up in this particular comic book universe is that way back when Hercules was doing his 12 labors, one of the labors was to steal the belt of Hippolyta, the queen of the Amazons. So in the comic book universe, what happens is after that, the Amazons get captured, and then they escape, and they're fed up with men and their wars and their aggression, and they decide, we're going to move away, we're going to start our own society. And they do. And it's way better than our society. It's technologically advanced. Everyone's healthy. They live forever. They're stronger. They're faster. It's a utopia, essentially. And Queen Hippolyta wants a baby, so she crafts one out of clay, and it's brought to life by the Greek gods, and she names her Diana, and she grows up in this utopian society. Then Wonder Woman's birth is kind of like a gray area. She's always written as, like, in her early 20s. She was on Paradise Island for a while, and then an American fighter pilot named Steve Trevor crashed on Paradise Island, and the Amazons didn't know what to do with them. They're not allowed to have men on the island. So Hippolyta consulted their chief gods, which are Athena and Aphrodite. And they said America's in the middle of a war. They actually call America the last little of freedom and democracy. And so the Amazons have to send a champion to take Steve Trevor back to America and to help America fight the war. So they have a competition to decide who's the strongest Amazon. Diana wins. She gets to be Wonder Woman and goes to America. Later on, Wonder Woman has special gifts from the gods that made her way stronger than all the other Amazons. But originally, they were all the same strength and ability. And Wonder Woman just happened to be the best of the best. Can you tell us a little bit more about the evolution of Wonder Woman? I think it's pretty interesting how much the narrative changes over time. Yeah, the origin story changed in the late 1950s. They changed it so the Amazons had husbands who all went to war and they died and the Amazons were sad. Diana was already born, but had been given special powers by Aphrodite, Athena, Hercules, and Hermes. Hermes and Hercules gave her speed and strength, which are useful powers. Aphrodite and Athena gave her beauty and wisdom, which are lovely, but not necessarily superhero powers. And then in the 1960s, she gives up her powers entirely, because by then Steve Trevor is her boyfriend, and the Amazons are going to a different plane, like a different dimensional plane, because their magics have worn out and they need to recharge. This is where she suddenly gets super lame and there's issues about her going shopping, right? Yeah, like she opens a clothes shop, and then Steve dies, so she travels around the world trying to avenge his killer while falling in love with every single man she meets, <laughs> like, within days of Steve dying. Oh, man. Well, even the idea of, like, I can give up my powers, it's okay, I have a boyfriend now, just really breaks my heart. And the worst part is it's 1968, so, like, women's lip has kicked off, it's a thing, and this is when they decide to take away all of her powers. You say they decide. Who are the people who are behind this decision? The editors at the time, and specifically the writer who took over, Denny O'Neill, and the artist, Mike Sikowski, they all kind of kicked around some ideas and came up with, let's make Diana a normal woman so that people, specifically girls, will identify with her because what they had been doing wasn't working sales-wise for them. That hadn't always been the case, though, right? In the early days, there were times when Wonder Woman outsold Superman issue by issue. Yeah, it sold like gangbusters. I mean, Marston did some weird things in that book. Like, there was a lot of bondage, a lot of sexual stuff between the lines that critics of the book noticed and brought to DC's attention. And Marston said, well, I'm not going to change it. And 
they decided to let him do it because it was selling like crazy, and that gave him a certain amount of power over the book. Now, when you say Marston, you mean William Moulton Marston, the original writer of the Golden Age original Wonder Woman, right? And he was an interesting dude. Tell us more about him. Yeah, he before he got into comics, he was a psychologist. He went to Harvard and kind of co-invented the lie detector test, the polygraph, and he worked in psychiatry for a couple decades. His big thing out of his psychiatric research was that he believed that women were superior to men. He thought that men were dominant and that that's a bad way for human relationships to go. But women were good at inducing submission out of others in a kinder, gentler way. And so if they were in charge, everyone would be happy and things would be more peaceful. And so when comics came out, like Superman and Batman in the late 1930s, and it was men being violent and angry and dominant, he decided to create one woman to embody his ideas of female superiority. The women in his life helped a lot with that. His wife, Elizabeth Marson, was also a college educated, which was somewhat rare for the time. She contributed a lot of ideas to the book. Marson also had a polyamorous relationship with Olive Byrne, his research associate, also college educated, also very smart, and actually the niece of Margaret Sanger, the birth control advocate. And so the three of them lived together. He had two children with each of them. Wow, that is so interesting on so many different levels. He's sort of at this weird vortex of like all of the historical things. <laughs> Can you tell us how Ms. Magazine and Gloria Steinem saved Wonder Woman from a lifetime of going shopping instead of catching criminals? Ms. and the people at Ms., so Gloria Steinem and, and others, weren't super pleased with the depowered Wonder Woman because they'd grown up with Wonder Woman comics. And so Wonder Woman, the Amazon superhero, meant a lot to them. And there are actually reports that Steinem went into D.C. and talked to the editors about it before it was changed. So yeah, when they launched Miss in 1972, they decided to put Wonder Woman on the cover because by then D.C. had decided to bring back the Amazon Wonder Woman. And so they got permission from D.C. to reprint her origin story from All-Star Comics number 8, her first appearance way back in 1941. And so that appeared with an article in the first issue of Miss. And Miss also released a collection of Golden Age Wonder Woman stories. And so Wonder Woman came back as an Amazon in the comics, but there was also this huge renaissance of Wonder Woman as a feminist icon through Miss. In making Wonder Woman an icon, they kind of recast those comics and did so by having Wonder Woman embody more modern feminist values. So instead of female superiority, it was equality and sisterhood was a a bigger thing than it was in the original comics. Where does the Linda Carter as Wonder Woman TV show fit into all this? The TV show was a separate thing entirely. The first season actually had a lot to do. I think it was connected to the Mist stuff because the Mist brought back the World War II Golden Age comics. And then the next two seasons, they jumped ahead to the 1970s. But still, doing their own thing, it wasn't really connected to the comics. We've seen so many superhero reboots in the last 10 years. Why is it taking so long to bring back Wonder Woman? Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous, eh? They've tried a couple times. Joss Whedon was attached to one for a while that he and Warner Brothers could never settle anything on, and they've tried a TV show a couple times. I mean, DC in general hasn't had the best luck with superhero movies, but Wonder Woman in general doesn't seem like a huge priority at any level of DC Comics. It seems that they all think that their audience is men 18 to 35, and they're not interested in marketing to anyone else, and so they don't really push their female characters very hard. So how do we fix that? What do we do? I guess what I would say is just to like the things that you like. Because there are female characters that are doing 
ridiculously well, and if they keep doing ridiculously well, someone at Warner Brothers is going to put two and two together and realize that Wonder Woman would make them a ton of money. Like Hunger Games is a behemoth in the movie theaters, and Frozen's made like a billion dollars with two female leads. If there's no lack of women kicking ass in the movies, so long as that keeps happening and those projects keep getting support, eventually they'd be absolutely stupid not to do a Wonder Woman movie. All right, Tim, we have just one more question for you. One thing we like to do with our guests is ask them to assign our listeners homework. I think it might be fun for people to uh, actually go and look at some of the old comics, one Woman one specifically, but any kind of old 1940s comics, just to see what they were like, because they're so different than the comics we get today. And again, like we were talking earlier about how they're such a mirror of society at the time, because we see panels here and there, like even in my book, I talk about bits of stories and stuff, but to actually read the comics themselves and to see how much they differ from what we get today, check your local libraries because a lot of libraries carry the old. DC has like archives and showcase and chronicles collections of old comics. So give them a read and uh, you might find some interesting stuff. Digging around in the public library for collections of old comics is a homework assignment that I will gladly do. That's Tim Hanley author of Wonder Woman Unbound, The Curious History of the World's Most Famous Heroine. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. You can follow him on Twitter for lots of nerdy goodness. He's TimHanley01. And speaking of nerdy goodness, here's some homework from Lev Grossman. I'm at this point well known as like as a professional advocate for Adventure Time, which I came to through the nine-year-old I was just talking about. Uh, I don't know if you guys watch Adventure Time, but I feel as though it's one of the brilliant defining cultural artifacts as kind of quintessentially awesome that the world somehow created. So I watch Adventure Time with just like huge total pleasure. And other than that, I'm just practicing not being afraid of people. And I'm going to give that as my homework assignment. Try walking around and not being afraid of people or at the very least doing things that you would do if you were not afraid of people. That's good. Yeah, I like that. If your alter ego can do it, so can you. You can, yes. Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. And one more piece of homework for you all. And this one you should probably do sooner rather than later. We know that it's a loosey-goosey Montessori-style curriculum here at NerdAt. You do things at your own pace. But if you read The Signature of All Things this week, you'll be prepped and ready for a conversation with author Elizabeth Gilbert next week. She's perhaps best known as the author of Eat, Pray, Love. Her new book is called The Signature of All Things. We understand it is a pretty dense tome. If you need something a little lighter, I recommend following Lev Grossman on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Leverus, which is a beautiful thing in and of itself. Snipe. Savarus Snipe. Dumbledore. Snipe. Snipe. Savarus Snipe. Dumbledore! Snipe. What is that mysterious ticking noise? Now it's time to hear from you. Time for nerd confessions! As we well know, with the Nerdette, often feelings run pretty deep about certain things. And this week's nerd confession is a shining example of that. Hey, Nerdette! Um, I am calling to leave a nerd confession because um, I am a major rap nerd. And I know, you know, according to, like, the arbiters of cool, whoever those are, liking rap is, like, supposed to be a cool thing. But it's 
probably not cool to cry about it. And I, it turns out I cry listening to rap kind of a lot. For example, the other day, Chance the Rapper performed what I happened to think was a historic set at Lollapalooza, and it was streaming live online. So I just moved into a new apartment. I didn't have Wi-Fi, and I went to a coffee shop by myself to watch this, like, tremendously beautiful, really emotional performance, and I was just sitting by myself at this coffee shop, like, smiling to myself and crying, and then... Two days later, I was painting my new room and listening to Dance the Rapper, just like straight through the newest mixtape and then this older mixtape, Ten Day, and this song came on called Prom Night. Charlie Bartlett, John Bender, Class Witcher, Time Bender, Chance Bennett, a peculiar name, graduation night, teacher's fear is Bueller, my name. And I was standing on a ladder with a roller, you know, painting my walls white. And the chorus came on, and it was about how everything was all right and okay. And we're all good, but we're homemades. Any problems, you could call us. It's all love. And he's with the homies, and he's so happy. And I was just thinking about this historic set that he did. And I sat down on the top of my ladder, and I just sobbed. And I didn't stop crying for hours. So <laughs> that's my nerd confession. Um, it's okay to cry about rap because nerdette is a safe space. And uh, I love your podcast. You guys are awesome. I am well familiar with the notion of weeping joyful tears. Also, this Trisha is one of my favorite Google Voice transcriptions so far. This Google transcription says that Nerdette is Larry dead and that Nerdette confession is American fashion. <laughs> it's true that sometimes the best part of your voicemails is reading the Google transcription before we listen to them. I always make sure to read them before I hear them because... They're so beautiful. We should just post some screen caps of them. We really should. I actually like to listen to them and then read them because if I just read them first, I'm like, that person doesn't make any sense. Obviously, this is worthless. Oh, but it always does, even though it says something like banana alligator, tomato five. Oh, my God. They're so good. This one also has <laughs> Nerdette is a safe space. And the transcription says, Nerdette, this is Steve Days. <laughs> so so just, close, Google. <laughs> so close. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Call us and leave your nerd confession. Again, the number 312-600-5638. Or just say hi. We love voicemails. You can find us at nerdatpodcast.com or talk with us on Twitter at nerdatpodcast. Like us on Facebook. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Dessau, Patrick Burns, and Iris Lynn. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw us some stars and a review on iTunes if you're feeling generous. Speaking of someone who threw us stars, we just got a very lovely review. This might be my favorite iTunes handle ever. Flute Jock. Thank you, Flute Jock, for your <laughs> complimentary review on iTunes. Every time you give us a review on iTunes, it helps spread the good word about Nerdette. We also appreciate all the tweets and reblogs, all the social love. There's one other way you can help Nerdette. That's if you're a business or you work for one that wants to get your message across to Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite this show. Email us, nerdettepodcast at gmail.com to find out how. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. 
Do your homework. Do your homework. Boy, why are you crying? I don't know. Tear for every happy thought. One for me. One for me. One for me. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.